So if I have an understanding that there's ableism in this setting, then my actions need to reflect that understanding. Welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, co-founder of the Modern Learners Community and Change School, as well as an author, speaker, leadership coach, and parent of two amazing kids. Every week I talk to leading educational thinkers and doers, and we do a deep dive into some of the challenges and opportunities that face educators today, and I offer some practical steps for what you can do right now to make sure your students thrive in the complex, fast-changing future they're going to live in. So welcome to the fourth and final episode in my month-long exploration about power in schools. And I don't know about you, but I have found all of these conversations fascinating in terms of how much the power relationships we have in schools impact the experience that kids have and the extent to which we are functionally unaware of the many ways in which power influences almost every decision that we make. But what I think I may have learned more than anything else is how power is inherent in our systems. You know, the ways that we interact with one another happen in large measure because of the underlying structures and norms and expectations that are baked into the system that was created at a time that looks much different from today in terms of our individual power to learn and to create and to connect. And so in today's podcast, we dive into the power that systems hold over us with Uslam Sensoy, a professor of education at Simon Fraser University and the co-author of Is Everyone Really Equal? An Introduction to Key Concepts in Social Justice Education, now in its second edition. Dr. Sensoy, whose forthcoming book, Why Take Media Seriously, comes out next year, talks powerfully about how we need to reflect deeply on how our actions are molded by the system, ways in which we can turn our classrooms and cultures into more equitable and more just environments, and how to work with colleagues and students to develop a greater sensitivity to the power of the system and ways to act to change it. I think it's a really important conversation, and I totally enjoyed it. But real fast before we get to that, I want to remind you once again that I'll be leading five new Modern Learners Labs up and down the East Coast in November, December, and January. And the best part, as always, is that I'll be doing it with two people who I really respect and who are good friends of mine, Dr. Gary Steger and Homa Tavanger. These events are going to challenge you and inspire you, and I just see them as great opportunities to do professional learning for yourself, but then get connected to a global professional learning community of others who are grappling with the most important topics of education today. You can get all the details at modernlearners.com labs, and I really hope you join us. It will be money and time well spent. And finally, as always, at the end of my conversation with Uslam, I'll be back with three things that you can do right now to think more deeply about your practice in the context of how the system exerts power over us and our students. Don't forget, if you like what you hear today, please head on over to iTunes, give us some love with a review and a rating. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation around power with us in our Modern Learners community. That's at modernlearners.community. Cheers, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. So I really appreciate you taking some time this morning to, to talk about this, this pretty complex topic about power and power relationships in schools. And I know you've done a lot of writing and thinking about that. So I was hoping you could start by maybe just talking a little bit about how do we come to understand our own power and what are the influences that school has on that? 
Sure, thanks, Will. It's really a pleasure to talk with you about this uh, really important topic. I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is that we, we, we all have a traditional sort of lay, layman's usage of the idea of power to mean something like authority or the capacity to have authority and control over others. And most of us don't have that kind of power. Um, we don't work in a system or in a place where we feel like we have the kind of authority to make others do things that we think are important or we believe are important and, and should be done. And so because we don't have access to that kind of conceptualization of power, power is authority, most of us don't feel like we benefit from um, power systems. In contrast to this sort of common sense lay usage of power that we have circulating in our in our society there's a, a slightly related but a slightly different usage of power in the academic sense and in academia and for um, social scientists and sociologists who work in sort of social justice domains for us power is more about normalcy um, it's a description not of or less about interpersonal relationships and more a description of systems. So uh, the way I talk about this sometimes with my students is through a, um, a, an analogy that's sort of a, um, a simplistic way to get at the idea. So uh, I'm left-handed and oftentimes the, in, a, in any group there will be a, few, a handful of us who are lefties and we talk about the ways in which um, being a lefty um, comes with, with its own handful of little struggles that, that, that permeate our, our daily lives in ways that are big and small. So we all know about the, you know, the scissors and holding the scissors or can openers in, in different ways and the de desks and classrooms at universities and in a lot of um, auditorium style places where if you're left-handed, you have to kind of lean over and write on right. the right-hand side of the desk. But there are all kinds of other places where we see right-handed privilege as a system, not necessarily as something that righties are doing to lefties, but that there's a system in place that benefits those who, are, who happen to be born right-handed in a social environment that was set up with them in mind as normal. So, um, we, so then we can brainstorm all kinds of ways and lefties tend to have a better perspective on this because we're the ones who actually come up against those walls, right? We swim right. against that current. And for righties, it's kind of hard for them to come up with, well, what, what kind of power do we have? You know, we don't, we don't see any power that we have when I'm, you know, putting my glasses in my chest pocket, it just happens to be on the side of my chest that's most convenient for my right hand to slip my glasses in and out of, or how I hold my phone and when I want to turn the volume up versus when I want to turn the power down. If I've got a thumb and four fingers on one side versus the other side, it's more natural for me to do right. it that way. And if you're talking to a group of a room full of lefties, um, you'll quickly see that we can come up with all kinds of examples every day of everyday <laughs> right. stuff. That's really not about being disempowered in the interpersonal way, but coming up against barriers that were not created by right-handed people per se, but by a system that we've inherited. And so when, when we, in the context of social justice issues or social sciences in general, talk about power, it's this kind of systemic normalcy um, that we are most interested in thinking about.
So how does that play out in schools? I mean, what are some of those systemic normalcies, I guess you'd call them, that we don't really necessarily um, interrogate or we don't necessarily even notice sometimes, but they're just kind of there as we enter the whole experience of school? I mean, can you talk about some of those maybe? Because the school is a constructed space, everything in that space is constructed from a particular uh from a particular point of view. And so because schools and all social institutions are uh, so humanly constructed, they will reflect the ideologies and values of those folks who are, who are constructing them. And so we can think about, start with the calendar of the school, the calendar year, when it starts and when it stops, what days are holidays and which ones are not, uh, what stat holidays look like and whose who's holiday or holy day. Is, is a stat holiday and whose isn't. That's oftentimes an easy way to enter into an understanding of how the system of the school, just as a, um, a place we go and when we go and when we leave, um, is set up. Marxists would say, and a lot of history, historians of education talk about the way that schools were set up as the first, as a way to uh, sort of in the post-industrial moment when we needed more workers, we need we need workers to be skilled in certain, um, in, have certain skill sets in order to enter into factories and these new industrial spaces. So the curriculum of school is also impacted by these early assumptions about what knowledge is of most worth. Um, we don't really have space for spiritual practice in schools, for instance, but that kind of an education was really central to a pre-industrial um, sense of what an educated person um, should be. For instance, uh, languages, right? In, in, some, in some historical moments and currently in some so, uh, geographical and social spaces, language study and the capacity to read and, uh, read and speak not just living languages, but so-called dead languages, so written texts like Latin, for instance, or Greek, these sort of textual um, studies uh, were extremely important to what, you know, folks we might call our ancient, you know, our ancestors in, in different parts of the world. So that kind of um, study is no longer seen as of value, or at least in the formal structures of, of schooling, it isn't. So everything from the system of, you know, when we go and how we go, um, I was just saying a moment ago, uh, you know, speaking of the Marxists, so some of um, the listeners might know about uh, the works of Michael Apple and um, Jean Anion and some of these early um, uh, curricular, uh, not early curricular theorists, but curricular theorists who've, who've implemented some of the ideas of Marxism would argue that in, in some ways school teachers and the school administration are our first bosses. You know, they tell us what time to show up for work. Right. Uh, they, they tell us how to behave at work, what tasks to complete and when and how. They assess our work. They tell us when to go for a break, you know, and, and how long that break will be. Um, and these patterns carry into very traditional working class workplace um, spaces. And it isn't necessarily about a teacher or a principal sort of exerting that kind of, you know, that authority power um, over uh, the students or the, the instructors in the class, it's a lot more about that system, understanding and making visible these systemic patterns um, of, of, of power and authority that we need to be able to see before we can um, confront or even dismantle. 
And my sense of it is in your writing that, that uh, most people don't see those things. I mean, again, they're kind of invisible. And, you know, we reference Seymour Saracen all the time, who was, a, who was someone who wrote about change in schools and talked about the fact that these power relationships that exist in schools really will prevent change from happening unless we put them on the table and, and really look at them and analyze them and talk about them truthfully in terms of how those relationships happen. So I'm wondering... How do we begin to make those types of relationships, those types of the, the way we meet out power and who has power and who doesn't, how do we make them more transparent, do you think? I mean, is, is it just first we have to take a look at ourselves or is it that we come together as a school community to do that or what? I would say one of the first strategies that could be useful in seeing how power is working in the school space would be to reframe the where the relations of power are occurring um, and shift them away from interpersonal, who has it, who doesn't have it, um, to systemic. How are we each seeing the systemic power that's in the space? And that's important for a couple of reasons. First, when we think about some people as having power, either through rank, and, rank or status, so when I say, um, I'll just, do a little footnote here. When I think of, um, and not just me, but when social scientists talk about rank versus status uh, power, um, we mean um, the difference between sort of positional power. So if I am the instructor, the professor in my class of students, I have status power in the sense that I'm the one deciding what the curriculum is uh, oftentimes and uh, deciding what our, um, what our assignments are and grading those assignments, et cetera. And so there's, there, I have that status power. Um, but as a woman faculty member, and if I have a room full of uh, male students, um, I don't have a lot of rank power in the sense that my identity position in relation to theirs is not one that has social power and privileges attached to it, whereas theirs does. If they looked up the, up the ladder of power in our institution, they would be more likely to find other men in positions of power over me. So rank and status are important indicators. And sometimes in a school, or uh, we might think that, for instance, um, students of color outnumber white students. And so that somehow seems like an imbalance of power in a particular place or we think of the um, principal or the, t or the teacher uh, as someone who um, has uh, less power because of a minoritized position they might have. So these dynamics are important, but if we think about the value of thinking about systems, so when I say systems of oppression and privilege, for example, I mean things like uh, a system of patriarchy, um, a system of capitalism, heteropatriarchy, um, heterosexism and sexism, how these systems are operating, allow each of us to think about it not as, an, as a personal flaw or a personal, like a zero tolerance kind of policies to prevent acts of one sort or another, but more as interrogating how this system, this systemic thing is manifesting in our space for all of us. So whether we are of color, black, indigenous, person of color, or white, we are each, we've each inherited and are in this system in which racism is playing out. Let's examine how it's playing out in our space and how we can each, in our different ways, contribute to seeing it 
and uh, addressing, helping to address some of those things. And as I said with the lefty example, those of us who are impacted more by those systems will be impacted by the experience and thus able to see it more clearly. And so that can uh, potentially help uh, shape how we um, who guides our conversation. So for instance, if I were, if I were in a class, in a, in a school setting and wanted to um, talk about the ways in which ableism was playing out in our system, and most of us were um, constructed as normal bodied and, and, and we didn't think there was a lot of neurodiversity um, in our space, it would be really incumbent upon us to listen to those who are impacted by ableism in our space as a place to start, both physically, but also in terms of neurodiversity, to have them begin to, to do more listening on that end, uh, rather than guessing about how ableism was playing out for them. We are the system. I mean, we make up, people make up the system and the institution and all of that type of stuff. So in some ways, we are complicit in the ways in which power happens and those relationships happen. So can you talk a little bit about our, our own contribution to that? I find um, sociologist Alan Johnson's analogy of the game of Monopoly um, really useful <laughs> in my thinking on this because he says, if we think of systems of oppression as the game of Monopoly and the, the game of Monopoly is there, but it, it only functions when people are playing the game, right? And so in that sense, they are relational in the way that you're describing. We are the system. The game doesn't happen without us participating um, and doesn't really get any value unless humans are interacting and playing the game. But at the same time, he says, I can describe and analyze that system. I can analyze that game without really saying anything about the people playing the game. And so there's something really valuable um, where we tend to want to jump to, so what do we do about it? And in fact, what we do about, when we think about it differently, our actions necessarily will also change. Uh, you know, the way we respond to what we're thinking about um, will change. So perhaps, so he says, you know, some, perhaps we don't play Monopoly. You know, we play a different kind of a game. We create a different system uh, or a different relationship to the system. Kids are really good at this, actually. I don't know any kid who has not at some point in their life taken apart the game that they were told to play in this way and played with it differently, right? Uh, I think we, we would all be able to point to or know of some kid in some, you know, in some aspect of our lives, whether they're students we've worked with or our own children or, or nieces and nephews that we have in our environment or grandchildren, we, we've seen them take apart the toy and play, play with toys that weren't supposed to play together, you know, the Barbie and the GI Joe, or create these new societies and new ways of being. And so it comes really, it comes really naturally to them to reinvent how systems work. And so I think that there's a lot of value in, in spending time in the context of an institutional space like a school, thinking about how these systems, so it, in a sense, describing the game of monopoly and spending time thinking about how that game is working before we jump to, okay, now how are we as people? Are we gonna play this game? Are we gonna change how this game is played? Use the same parts and play it differently? Are we gonna stop playing the game or play a different game, um, et cetera? So do we suppress that in kids though when they come to school, that kind of changing the rules types of behavior? 
Yes, I think we do. And I don't think it just, it's just in schools. I think it's in the um, sort of in the corporate play environment that's around them. We tell them how to play uh, with certain games. The, the work, uh, a lot of my work um, is in media literacy and youth popular, youth popular culture. And one of the things that we know from the scholars who work in that in that area is that corporately constructed play can stifle it, um, kids' imagination. So for example, if we have a, an animated film and there is a series of toys that are released and that are just about that film, and there are DVDs and sort of karaoke audio CDs and, and podcasts that are released, that rather than allow imaginative play, really steer kids to reenact the film the way that they first saw it. So in a sense, it's a lot of memorization and the play becomes a reenactment of the film that they saw. Of course, kids resist this all the time and we, we, you know, we know that they do. They don't always play in the way that they're told to play with things. But the pressure and the sea tide to play in this way is very strong and not just from the adult sort of toy producers who want them to play in these ways, but also from um, their peer groups. So when everything is about a particular, a particular animated show in the way that it's, it's, it's talked about and played in, um, in their peer group becomes the norm. And so it, it can become really difficult to sort of publicly speak a different a different voice. So if we're taking, you know, any characters, so characters in Shrek, and I want to merge them with the ones in Toy Story, and I think these characters would be great together. They should meet. And in my universe of play, I want these characters to meet. That's a very wonderful imaginative thing for kids to experiment with, but they have to work against the paths of play that have been established by the um, toy culture and the um, the producers of of all of the materials that are that are marketed to um, kids and their and their parents. And there's a parallel to that too, obviously, with playing the game of school, right? I mean that they absolutely have to, or they feel pressured to um, to act in ways that are expected to produce products that you know they they perceive as the ones that the teacher wants or that the Absolutely. system wants and all that kind of stuff right so Absolutely. i guess i guess the question becomes then how do we make space for more of that kind of weird play for lack of a better phrase right that that play that's outside of the bounds of what we are or, or what kids expect or what we expect do we can we change the system by creating more space for that it's a really difficult question, isn't it? Because as soon as we uh, create an assignment in school, let's say uh, my, my assignment is for the primary kids to, uh, you know, primary um, at primary schools, we, we do an expanding horizon. So social education works on expanding horizons. I start with my family, my neighborhood, my town, my city, and usually in upper elementary and secondary, they move into the nation and and international settings. So in those first few years, when I'm talking about me and my family, what does my family look like, right? Even that very easy assignment of draw your family, where does your family live? It's really hard to not be confronted with the potential stigmas that are associated. If my family, you know, er everyone around the table um, has a family who lives in a, in a house with a yard and, a, and mom and dad, uh, very sort of small traditional nuclear family, 
but my family lives in an apartment building. We live with my extended relatives. We, I, you know, single parents, or I have one dad, or I have two dads. And so while kids want to fit in, everyone wants to fit in, right? Those differences start to become visible. So that's the first dilemma is how do teachers then manage the space so that those differences and that creativity and reality. So it's not just creative play in the sense, this is my real family. This is where I live. And these are the people that I love and who love me. Right. So, and if there's a stigma attached to that reality, then we start to figure out ways to manage that, to minimize harm for ourselves. But the other part of this issue is if I'm an instructor, if I'm a teacher and I've designed a set of assessments around these activities, I'm now confronted with a second level of, of challenge, not just the idea of making students feel like they can express the authenticity of who they are in a, in a safe and supported way and validated way, but also now how do I create the kinds of assessment rules that are required by the system that allow for this student to express who they actually are and for that knowledge to be seen as as true and valid knowledge. If I'm assessing because there's a grade four standardized test from the province or the state that's coming up, then a part of my responsibility is to prepare that kid for that test. And so all of these sort of systemic realities start to constrain and kids pick up on this, which is why very early on, and you know, I work mostly with university students now, I'm in, I'm in elementary and secondary classrooms, often visiting as, an, as a professor doing research, but in my university classroom, I see the end product of that K-12 arc of what does the instructor, what does the professor want me to say here? Right. And what is the thing that I'm going to say that's going to get me the reward? And the reward is not learning anymore. The reward is the A, right? And anything less than that, if I get a B plus, I want to know what I got wrong. And if what I got wrong is not just about sort of observable facts in the world, but right. excuse me, about um, expressing an idea or an interpretation about a text, for example, writing an essay about um, an event, um, a historical event, for instance, that can be really troubling because then our ideas and our interpretations are not just things we critique in terms of their defensibility around a set of claims related to facts and evidence, for example, but they become things that we assess in light of, or things that we write with an assessor in mind, who's right. going to give us a reward or a punishment in relation to our thinking. That's a really troubling um, thing. And it's extremely hard by the time students enter into university, to almost be deprogramming, and a lot of my undergraduate students especially are mad and they're right to be angry about why it is that they now are told they can sort of think creatively or write critically. Why are you telling me that now when everything that I've had to do in order to make it to this point has been the utter rejection of that? I'm wondering if you think, and I want to go back to something that you said a little bit earlier about principals and teachers being our first bosses. I found that really interesting, right? And so I'm wondering if your sense of it is that the world is beginning to shift in some fairly fundamental ways that are putting pressure on the system to begin to kind of rethink the rules, right? So I think the first boss um, example is a great one because 
the future of work seems much more uh, uncertain. It m looks much different in terms of the way it's configured. It's not like we're going to sit, most kids coming out of school now are not going to have one job for their careers and all that type of stuff. So if we're trying to, if we were trying to prepare kids for the post-industrial age by being their first bosses back in the day, do we need to then shift the way that we structure that experience of school for kids who are going out into a much different world? And, and how, if so, how do we do that? Well, I agree with you that the circumstances of life outside of the institution of school are different than at the time that school, the institution of schools were created, the modern school, in the modern Western school, I guess. So that most folks in my, for instance, I think of my, my father's generation, all of his peers and, and siblings had a high school and some trades uh, education and got extremely well-paying jobs. They worked at for their entire careers, got promoted, had were able to buy a home and raise their families on their um, incomes and didn't, didn't need the degree of the undergraduate degree or a graduate degree in order to attain the kind of salary that would allow them to live you know, a good life, a modest life, not, a, a, not an extravagant life, but live the good life that most folks want to, want to be able to live in their uh, adult lives. So today, that's very different. And I hear a lot of my undergrad students saying they, they're, they're at university because they have to get a bachelor's degree. Right. That a bachelor's degree is now the minimum, right? It's, it's not even a guarantee. As you said, it's not even a guarantee that you're going to have your one job in your career and you're going to have a good career at that one place and you're going to be happy and you'll be able to afford the things that you want to afford and take a holiday and, and do all of these relatively modest things that most of us would want in our lives. So I guess there are at least two things that we need to think about. First is, what, are, what is education for? Is it a training ground? And I guess what is education for and what is schooling for are two related but distinct kind of questions. That right, because those are two different things, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, they are. And we tend to think about them simultaneously, that yeah. education is going to happen in school, and that the school's responsibility is to prepare us for the job market. Because once we get out of school, we ought to be able to translate that degree into a job. So if the post-industrial, so I'm going to say something here that's going to make me seem like a, one of those, you know, red seal socialists that, the, <laughs> that a lot of uh, politicians are afraid of. But if the purpose of education is to have the capacity to develop citizens in a community that are contributing positively to their own and to their community life, who are informed about uh, our history and can contribute to sort of sustaining and maintaining that, the, the positive legacies and dismantling the troubling legacies for future generations. If that at least is, is part of what it means to be an educated person. And work is somehow uh, an important piece of that. Then, and along with all of this, we know from capitalist thinking that the system of capitalism will always want to maximize profits. There is never enough. Right. It is always needing to continually maximize profits for its shareholders. And that by doing that, we need more, greater efficiency, which usually means 
fewer workers doing more work, then we're either going to need to dismantle the system of capitalism in order to sustain our beliefs that edu- what, of what an educated person should be, or capitalism will eat us all. <laughs> and uh, that is a, a future that uh, might be worthwhile for a small group of folks, and for them too, only for a short period of time until until all the all the labor's gone. Uh, but this is part of the reason why the union movements have been under threat for the past um, generation, uh, because our our capacity to um, withhold our bodies and our minds, our labor, is really the only way in which working people have been able to put pressures on the systems of capitalism to, uh, to, to say, at what point is enough in the system enough for the, hot, the people who are benefiting the most? And when is it that we think we, we do, without assigning this almost slur of socialism to the mix, when do we say, in order to have an educated and well-lived life, there are certain commitments that we need to make as a society to what, what systems need to be in place in order to support people to be able to access that kind of a life. So it seems like outside of schools, the rules are changing in the world. The rules change. Um, the rules are shifting. Um, it's becoming a lot more difficult to figure out what the rules are. And so I think, you know, my kids certainly and, and kids going through schools today are, are going to be subjected to a lot of chaos and uncertainty and whatever else. But the rules aren't changing that much in school. Right. And and the rules are still pretty much, as you mentioned before, you know, I love the analogy that you had about your undergraduate students saying, basically, I've figured it all out. And now you're telling me that it's different and really resisting that. Right. Mm-hmm. So. I'm wondering um, what you would say to the idea that we need to create environments in schools that are more uncertain or are a little bit more chaotic or that break the rules, that that may be an important thing that we do in order to then prepare kids for that type of environment when they leave school. Teachers have been doing this. Teachers have been on the front lines of this work for generations. They are the ones on strike fighting for smaller classroom sizes so that they can work with those students who express themselves in all of these creative ways. So they can work with the kids who are neurodiverse. Public schools can't say, no, you can't come here because it's too hard for us to teach you. Most teachers want to be able to reach all of their students and nurture the gifts that they have and to help them to help them through those parts of their thinking on subjects that are difficult for them. Uh, but it, whether that's reading or math or science or, or art or, or phys, you know, physical education, and like we, we're, we're not excellent in every way. And I, I have yet to meet um, teachers who aren't consistently wanting more time, uh, more closer interaction with more of their students while we have sort of people running governments who at whatever levels, whether it's um, in Canada, we have ministry, the um, schoolwork is governed by more local ministries at the provincial or state equivalent of state level, um, or whether it's a federal sort of ministries and of education who decide then based on fiscal rather than educational goals, what is the most efficient formula. So teachers have been, uh, at the front lines of this fight 
for a very long time, whether it's in um, uh, New Mexico and Arizona and California. I'm, I may have uh, apologies if I have that wrong around the ethnic studies um, fight that the teachers there were battling and won for the inclusion and the value and the importance of ethnic studies and bilingual studies in those states in Canada and in various other places against it, where there have been fights on the part of teachers against standardized tests and the and the rationale that they've brought against teaching to the test kind of formulas and the pressures of that and how antithetical it is to learning the I know the Chicago teachers have been on strike for a week again fighting for uh, smaller class sizes they have been on the front lines of of challenging the structures and the decision makers whose decisions impact these everyday interactions in schools that that will either perpetuate these problematic systemic issues we've been talking about or will create the conditions where more of these creative worthwhile out of the box um, thinking can occur that can nurture some of our you know the future generations and who knows what creative uh, what creative geniuses in multiples multiples of them there are in our classrooms who are who are not allowed to who are not permitted to, um, the space to flourish in their thinking there's obviously a lot of work to do and um, one of the things that you wrote that I thought was interesting is that you know agreeing that social justice is important is not enough educators must practice social justice or else the concept is meaningless so just in a general sense, I mean, I think probably the work that the teachers are trying to do to change education and, and make it more equitable for children is a lot to do with social justice, but there are many other things that are going on out there. How can we as educators live that a little bit more in our practice instead of just talking about it? I think there's um, a story that we tell in the book that's about um, as women, if we were to speak to a male, a male colleague or friend, and that friend said, oh, I'm just so paralyzed by patriarchy, and I'm so upset learning about misogyny, and that's terrible, the circumstances that you, um, that you have to live, that belief or feeling wouldn't be enough. So we would expect that now that you know that and you see that, then we, then we would expect that your behaviors would, would change accordingly. And it could be that you ask questions and raise issues at meetings, for instance. If, if your male colleagues are dominating the meeting, then you make a move and you say, hey, let's hear from everyone. Could we go around and hear from everyone in the room? Or, you know, Will, we've heard a lot from you. Let's, let's take a break and hear from, hear from some other folks who are here and, and want to turn. So everything we do would be impacted by a shift in our understanding. So if we believe in social justice, what does that belief mean? It has to mean that you have the capacity to articulate a critique of a systemic dilemma, whether that's racism or classism or heteropatriarchy, something that's happening that is oppressive in the situation that you're in is what it means to believe in or have an understanding in uh, social justice. You believe that that's happening and you believe it's worthwhile to dismantle that in some capacity. So if you have that belief, it means you should nurture the critique, the capacity to see, right, and to develop a vocabulary around what's happening. And then I believe your actions will follow from that. So if I have an understanding that there's ableism in this setting, 
then my actions need to reflect that understanding. So it could be reflected in the, uh, the supports that I see or that I advocate for if I have, if I have kids with disabilities in my, uh, or families with disabilities in my school space. It could, ref it could be reflected in the images that I have. Uh, reflected around me, the guest speakers that I, that I invite, not necessarily people with disabilities to talk about being a person with a disability, but people with disabilities on sports day to help us think about how different bodies do sports differently, right? So every aspect of my understanding about ableism and my commitments to social justice in my practice of teaching should flow from that. The challenge, I think, is that, um, or the difficulty is that we want to do, once you start to see these dilemmas, you want to try to address all of them all at once. Right. And I think that can be a setup for, for failure and disappointment. And you don't want that. And there are things that we can do to counteract that. So one is to just commit yourself to one thing for one month or give yourself a, you know, so this month I'm just going to work on on ableism or I'm just going to work on sexism. I'm just going to practice seeing it. I'm going to practice developing my vocabulary. I'm going to read something or I'm going to attend a talk or I'm going to watch a, a webinar. I'm going to do something that helps me develop my vocabulary around this. And then I'm going to practice seeing some of that in my workplace. And maybe I'm going to practice interrupting it somewhere. I don't know where yet, but that's my goal for the month. And that's what I'm going to focus on this month. So that's one way to do it is to give yourself an achievable goal and focus just on one thing and next month I'll pick something else to focus on and and continue to develop my skill set. The other way to do it is to find a critical friend and to be a critical friend. So this is usually most helpful if there's someone a little bit who you admire in a certain way on one so who's a little ahead of you in, in their thinking in in one domain and then to be a critical friend to somebody else in your workplace and to check in and again that could be once a month there's a dynamic in my, in my classroom or in my workplace that's a little weird. Help me think through it. And we just sit down and have coffee. And once a month, we sort of check in with each other about, about our practices. So trying to do it all, in a, if we think about how these systemic issues have been around for generations, it's really a setup to fail. I'm a believer in micro actions. I really do think that standing still is not an option in the face of these things, but it doesn't mean that we we have to dismantle everything overnight, but we do have a responsibility to do something. And, and that can be lots of things and anything we do is better than nothing. Well, I think that's a great place to leave this conversation, which has been fascinating for me. Um, and as I said at the beginning, it's, it is really complex on so many different levels and it's hard to parse. And I think it's something that we don't talk about or think about enough, honestly, in schools. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing around this. And I appreciate the time to come in and, and help me understand it better. And hopefully the people who are listening as well. Thanks so much. Thank you, Will. It's been a pleasure. So what can you do now after listening to Islam's thoughts about power in the system? Well, here are three suggestions for you. First, as she suggests, find a colleague with whom you can reflect and play a critical friend's role when it comes to identifying and changing practice that may be supporting the most problematic parts of our system. Second, pick up her best-selling book, Is Everyone Really Equal?, and use it for a lens for your own classroom practice and finally, check out the link in the show notes to her article in Phi Delta Cap entitled Developing Social Justice Literacy, an Open Letter to Our Faculty Colleagues. It's a great read. 
I really hope you've enjoyed this series on power in schools. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. See you next week. Thank you.